social ladies. All the 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 social ladies. Now put your phones up. What a nice sound that is. I love that it's wine, too. It's a spritz to go along with today's episode. No spoilers. We have to get through the updates first. Okay. Well, let's cheers to the last episode of the season. We made it through season six, Michelle. Pause for a drink. It's yeah. so good. Yeah, the last episode of the season, last episode of the year. Hope everyone is getting ready to go celebrate with their families COVID-free. Okay, Jen, you know what would go really well with this blood orange spritz? The blood orange spritz. Say that five times fast. <laughs> um, the viral feta pasta? I was going to say the pasta chips, but that's good too. What about the corn ribs? <laughs> I would love to try the corn ribs, but we don't have an air fryer, which I think you need for that. But in case you missed it, in March, the TikTok kitchen is coming to locations across the U.S., It's a virtual dining concept where TikTok is launching delivery-only food options that showcase recipes that went viral on the app. So ghost kitchens aren't a new concept to us, Jen, because we've been very Mm. into this subject since our seamless seamless days. days. Yes. But for those who don't know, a ghost kitchen, so think about like a city where people rely on food delivery a lot, like us in New York. There are restaurants on the apps that don't exist in real life. They so, don't have accessible storefronts. Correct. The only way to get their goods is by ordering <laughs> online. One of our favorite sandwich places we used to order from in the office, one day we were like, let's just go there instead of ordering and showed up and there was no it door. It just wasn't there. We could not get in. <laughs> but the food is great. Yeah, say so it's a weird thing to wrap your head around, but you know, ghost kitchen. So TikTok is getting in on that next. There's going to be about 300 TikTok restaurants across the country, like Michelle said, by the end of 2022. It's kind of cool. Very cool. Okay, speaking of food, every restaurant and every brand in the world, I feel like dropped an NFT this week. Oh my gosh. Applebee's has recently released the Metaverse meal as part of the restaurant's Metaverse Mondays. (laughs) And a new menu-inspired NFT design will be available every Monday. White Castle got in on the fun. Pepsi. Budweiser, Nike, Adidas. There's a running list on AdAge right now of every brand who has released something. Released an NFT. And the list is so long and it's just growing by the minute. Now is the time to jump on it. Yeah, before it's lame and every, I guess every brand is already doing it. But. Right. Digital dough. There's like a pun there. Like Ooh. food and pizza. Pizza Hut? Where are you at? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so on the topic of innovation, I want to talk about a new social network that is hitting the app stores. It's called Supernova. Sounds super fun. And it's not like the (laughs) Xenon of the 21st century Supernova Girl song. It's billing itself as an ethical alternative to Instagram and Facebook. Okay, so the catch is Supernova is giving 60% of its advertising revenue to global charities with the money distributed according to members' preferences among the following subjects. Climate change, animal welfare, emergency causes, health and well-being, help the homeless, human rights, mental health, and ocean cleanup. Oh my god, amazing. Yes, and the cause that gets the most money is actually determined by users. So the interface looks similar to Instagram and Facebook where you can post photos and videos Um, But instead of likes fueling, I guess, narcissism, (laughs) the likes serve as votes. And that is a vote for that charity that the post is tied to. That's amazing. Very interesting. I fully support this. I'm excited to see how this continues to grow. Me too. Pause for another sip. 
Now the perfect segue. <laughs> okay, so we teased in the beginning that we were drinking this canned wine. It's actually a canned spritz from the brand Ramona. And our guest is the CEO and founder of Ramona. Jordan is one of the world's top female sommeliers and winemakers. She was a sommelier at 11 Madison Park. She oversaw the beverage program for the Momofuku restaurants. And now she has launched an organic canned cocktail company, Ramona. Going into this interview, I was already so impressed by the branding. And then coming out of the interview, I think I learned so much more about the wine industry in general. Definitely. It's such a great episode. I'm excited for you all to hear it. Hi, Jordan. Welcome to all the social ladies. Hello. I'm so happy to be here with you both. Thank you for So let's jump into the speed round. We're going to ask you some rapid fire questions. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. What's your favorite social network? Social network? I would probably have to say Instagram. Although I love TikTok. I'm just, mm-hmm. I have not yet fully immersed myself in it. <laughs> Do you pronounce it GIF or JIF? I have always said GIF. What Instagram ad can you not get rid of? Oh, what Instagram ad? Uh, lots of pots and pans are showing up mm, on my yeah. Instagram these days. That's a big one. <laughs> yes. What is your go-to emoji? Go-to emoji is probably the red heart. Yes. Classic. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Who is your favorite celebrity to follow on social? Beyonce is just such a classic. I like following Jennifer Garner. If I had to pick one, Jennifer Garner. She's hysterically funny and so real. I love Reese Witherspoon. I love following her. Yes. Reese's um, TikTok is actually really oh, good. Oh yeah. With her Ooh. son. Yeah. She does TikTok. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so good to know. Okay. <laughs> okay. Last speed round question. What was your first screen name? <laughs> My first screen name. Oh, I think it was J Dog D A W G. I love it. Yeah. It was like came out of college. That's I think. great. Yeah. Yeah. Some of the okay. answers we've heard have been absolutely amazing. So that <laughs> falls into that category. Yeah, that Don't good. worry. <laughs> Okay, so moving into the interview, we're super excited to talk to you. We know you have a great background and a fun little tidbit is Jen and I one year used our holiday bonus (laughs) to go to dinner at 11 Madison Park. And it was like the most amazing experience for us. Oh my goodness, Um, what year? I wonder if I was there. I probably wasn't. It was 2017 or 2018? Yeah. 2017 sounds about right. Yeah. Oh my goodness. So we were super excited to talk to you and want to hear just about your background in general. How did you break into the industry and what was your, you know, first role like and how you got to where you are today? Oh my goodness. Okay. So I got into this industry sort of accidentally, I would say, but also like subconsciously very intentionally. (laughs) So I would say like, what do I mean by that? my, My father's father, whom I never met, died when my dad was 13. And the only story my dad ever tells about his own dad is that they used to make wine together in the basement. And this was like a a thing that Italian Americans Mm -hmm. did in the basement. My dad grew up in Waterbury, Connecticut. And I know it well. Waterbury (laughs) and winemaking in the basement, but (laughs) you're kidding me. Oh my goodness. We have to have another longer conversation. Yes. (laughs) Yes. And so that was just, it was like something that, that had this connective property, I guess, like throughout my life in a way that I absolutely never internalized or thought anything about. It was just sort of like, oh, you know, like my grandfather, Daniel made wine with my dad. And that was sort of all I knew about him when we were growing up. My mom always had a glass of, her thing was like Chardonnay back in like the era when we were young. I have two sisters and she and her friend Debbie would have 
have like a glass of Chardonnay together, you know, <laughs> in a way that like I now have my evening spritz. Before, but my dad, whenever we'd go out as a family, my dad would order a bottle of wine and like we'd always be able to taste a sip at a restaurant or at the dinner table. And I right. thought nothing of it and was not moved by it in any way. But it was sort of like it had no stigma attached. And it was, if anything, it was sort of this romantic ability to connect on a subconscious level with my grandfather, just sort of this notion of wine. And then as I started studying wine and became drawn to it more, realizing that it is this connective tissue in this much bigger way, where it's sort of a bottle, a good bottle of wine reflects a person's point of view, a philosophy, Mm -hmm. a particular place at a particular moment in time. So I sort of fell into that while in New York, right out of college in various ways. So like I had this day job that was not very inspiring and I had a night job or an evening job hostessing at a restaurant in my neighborhood in the East Village that was sort of helped augment rent. And that led to another, uh, I would do these wine tastings there, but it was not, I I, I sort of would help the owners manage and plan these wine tastings. But the owners, and that was like my introduction to wine tasting. And then fast forward, I ended up at a, a restaurant soon after that. There was a sous chef named Fran Derby. I will forever be thankful to him. And it was the first place I ever worked where the chef was incredibly cerebral and very curious and valued curiosity and valued experimentation and was very like open to anyone there who cared. And so I was a hostess, but I cared and I would show up for whatever the daytime tasting was or whatever was sort of going on. I was just interested in it. Interested to see this functional restaurant that was not a chain that was very philosophical that sort of went hand in hand with my English literature degree. And that, (laughs) that led to actually really good advice from my mom. And I didn't like the advice at the time, but she was like, look, if you really love this world and you want to write, which I, that was what I wanted to do. I Mm -hmm. wanted to write. And she said, if you really want to do that, you should think about how to differentiate yourself and like, make sure you're, you're qualified to write about these great restaurants. And so I enrolled in culinary school and then which the culinary school I enrolled in was called Johnson Wales and they had a Denver campus. So I moved back to Denver, enrolled in culinary school and submitted some writing samples to the Denver Post, which was like the Denver newspaper at the time. I think it still is. And they were looking for a cheap eats column. And it was like one of those moments, I guess, in retrospect, it's like the universe will help you if you know with clarity what it is you want to do. And so like my dream spot was the Denver Post. And I dropped off a bunch of resumes to a bunch of places. And that was the place that said, hey, actually, this could be interesting. Here are like three more hoops to jump through, like pass this test and we'll give you this column. So I ended up with this column as I was in culinary school. And that was the thing I knew with clarity after that, or like going through that was that I wanted to get back to New York. And so I- I was going to say, it must've been hard to go from like being immersed in the restaurants and in the culture and then saying, okay, I'm going to go you know, yeah. back to school for a little bit or start writing. It seems like I'd be itching to get back to New York at that yes, point too. <laughs> exactly. And so that was like a really good thing to have such clarity on because it was sort of like, all right, here I am right now. And I I, I know that what I'm doing is ultimately, you know, or I believe, I was like, I'm pretty sure what I'm doing now is really going to help me ultimately be better at whatever it is I do when I get back to New York. And mm-hmm. so Because at this point, you didn't know Somalia specifically was something no. you wanted. It was just more just being in that world. Being in that world. Exactly. And actually in culinary school, you had to take two wine courses, like intro and advanced. And by that point, actually through a man whose name is Robert Bourne. Now we've been married for 13 years. <laughs> I 
the time, he was like this guy that would come into WD-50 and he would sometimes ask me on dates. So yeah, so that was the very first time that I had truly world-class wines, like wines that collectors collect. And mm-hmm. that, and for me, what was so incredible about that is that these wines were so transportive. I was immediately in a different place. And Burgundy was like this underdog, but it was this yeah. underdog with this incredibly rich history of so many stories and this way in which geology and geography and history and terroir and the person, all of these things connected. And the people that loved Burgundy and the people who made Burgundy were so soulful. And that was so incredibly interesting to me. And I feel so fortunate that I was exposed to it at that time. I feel like you joked that, you know, your literature degree, (laughs) you know, maybe not have anything to do with the wine job, but it sounds like the stories of like the people and the wines is really what draws you to it. So I feel like there is connection there. No, and it it took me probably 10 years to realize like, okay, that actually was a really good decision. That was the right decision (laughs) for me at the time, but also in life, because I think communication and articulating what we care about is so meaningful. And yeah, so I ended up at Danielle and I guess I ended up cooking at Danielle for my internship, which for some reason is called an externship in the culinary (laughs) world. And that was basically like the place where you go out into the world and you actually cook at a real restaurant. And that was required by Johnson Wales. And I knew that that was sort of my ticket back to New York and loved my, you had to do it like a three-day stage or a test at Danielle. And and I just knew that was exactly where I wanted to be. But there was one particular day I had just gone to a cookbook shop called Bonnie Slotnick Cookbooks. It was like I had gone there on my day off on Sunday and bought a book and I brought it into the kitchen because that was the culture of Danielle. Like Everyone is constantly finding old books and sharing their information. That was one of the things that I love so much about it. And I brought in a book called Great French Chefs that I had found and it had been out of print for many years. And I went and showed it to the one of the chefs and I was on my way home, but I stopped by the pastry kitchen because the pastry team always left out whatever was left over and there was this leftovers yeah leftovers and then there was this apple lasagna which was incredible and yeah. it was like melt in your mouth thinly sliced apple that had been cooked in sugar oh. and so I popped one in my mouth and in comes Danielle blue and he sees me and he's like oh who are you and like, oh, <laughs> mouth I'm full of apple lasagna exactly I'm like oh just don't mind me chef my name's Jordan and I'm I work in your kitchen and this is a book called Great French Chefs. And Danielle, is just, he's the most curious and most kind person, especially if he knows that you care. Because yeah. like, now as a business owner, there's nothing that matters more than like a team of people who care right. and work with you. And he immediately said like, okay. He took the book and he starts flipping through it. And he found a recipe of Paul Boku's recipe for red mullet with potato scales, which it, at my specific job or part of my specific job at that exact moment and in time was wrapping the bass, the black bass poppiette, which was Danielle's Mm. signature dish. And it turns out that that particular recipe had inspired Danielle to make the black bass poppiette. Oh, that's amazing. And so it was just this sort of realizing that you're part of this lineage. And and he had a bottle of wine with him, and I'm pretty sure it was 1985 Jaboulet La Chapelle. And he said, hey, do you like wine? And I said, yes, 
yes, I do. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Glad you asked. <laughs> yes, he poured me a glass. And then we just, then that's when he told me the story and he shared all of this. And then from that moment on, anytime there was like a significant wine event, he invited me to cook for it. And that uh, fast forward to the very last event that I cooked in the kitchen was called the Palais de Neige in 2006. It was held in Aspen, Colorado. It was through that event that Danielle said, look, it's very clear to me you love wine and you can always have a job in my kitchen, but what you should do is work harvest. That should be the Were you surprised to hear that or were you excited? It was like the thing that I had not known that I could imagine for myself. And what's fascinating for me, I realized through that, that you can read as many books about harvesting or winemaking as I wanted, but until I was in a winery, understanding, yeah, yeah, the decision-making process. And so that was really, I think that was so eye-opening, both in terms of Burgundy, but also in terms of just understanding decision-making and what went into a great bottle of wine versus an extraordinary bottle of wine versus like a bottle of wine that I I don't care to personally purchase or consume. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I imagine a lot of that learning from that first moment too has led to your role now. Yes. I'm like (laughs) wanting to do it yourself. Yeah. yeah, I'm like putting two and two together and it's like, wow, all of this education and knowledge and just like hands-on experience kind of really set you up for this entrepreneurship in a way too. I know I'm kind of like jumping the gun, but I'm curious is like, if you do feel that way or how it really has come to fruition for you now with Ramona. A hundred percent. I think in so many ways. And it's like one of those examples where I can look back and the dots connect. Yeah. Right. You use the word serendipitous before and I, I I'm getting that feeling again. Yeah, that opened up the door for Ramona, which was this idea that had been in my head for a long time. I didn't know what I was gonna call it, but it was like, why is it that nobody made beverages for casual moments? Yeah. With a with a value system that people who like grew up on Whole Foods like I did mm. or who care about not consuming like coal tar based dyes or artificial ingredients or like secret things like Velcrin, which is like actually in a lot of I've not yet been able to find a production facility that will can an RTD beverage without making people use Velcrin. And that is why we moved production to Italy. Velcrin, a neurotoxin, it is, has to be administered with a hazmat suit. It breaks down to CO2 and methanol. And the only reason I know what it is, is because I was told I had to use it. Wow. It was like, this is not what we do here. This is like the entire purpose of Ramona is so that I don't have to do stuff like this. Right. And yeah, I think like, yeah, the American chemical lobby is very powerful and very strong and for reasons that I do not understand and like yeah. and really want to focus on like making this a case is like hey if you're adding neurotoxins to stuff and people consume it you need to tell them like I want to know <laughs> I, I think it's interesting that you were at Momofuku before that because I feel like David Chang and those restaurants in general are about like doing new things I think finding those like casual moments like you said to have an, a nice dinner and I think the casual wine part of that is like I could see him serving that at the <laughs> restaurants is kind of what I'm saying. Yes. So it seems like that might've been like a little bit of inspiration too. Unintentionally. Yeah. 100%. No. And I think one of the things that Dave encouraged, which is why I'm certain that this idea germinated soon after I was at Momofuku. I mean, even though it sort of never materialized until several years later was this notion. Dave said to me, like upon hiring, he's like, I'm excited for you to join this team. And the thing that's going to be really different about Momofuku as a to the other places you've worked here I want you to take all those rules you've learned and then I want right you to exactly them. that's exactly what I was <laughs> yes. kind of alluding to yep yes 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 I have to hear more about the differentiation of Ramona in itself like there's we've seen such 
an influx of canned beverages, RTDs in the universe. I feel like the summer of seltzer, (laughs) all of these things we've heard time and time again. So I'm just curious as to like, what else are you doing as far as like a a strategy for marketing these beverages? Yes. Okay. So it's funny, like the thing that we're doing, I think like from like a marketing strategy point, it's basically like saying what we've always done and like how that's different from all these other things. Yeah. And like that, that is a shift because when we launched years ago, we were so new to the can space and it was sort of like, Hey, people like get on board. The cans are, we promise cans <laughs> that's scary. Like they can be good too. It's really about the value system. And so like cans are fun. And like, yeah, so that was sort of the messaging back then. And then that's, that's obviously so easy to replicate. So there are so many yeah. things in cans with bright colors right now. And it's like, all right, yes, that's part of our color palette. And like, we like being bright and sort of like loud for the best. But how do we do like what? Yeah, so in short, what we've started doing is talking about our differentiating features and there are so many of them. We work with grapes that are organically farmed and always have been organically farmed and are basically part of a 4,000 year history of organic viticulture. In, oh, in wow. It's really, really hard to grow grapes organically in the US and the grapes that are grown organically in the US are really expensive. And then, the, so it's basically like, yeah, why would we sort of work with a product product that's going to be lesser, like basically anyone who's growing organic grapes in the U.S., isn't really interested in selling them unless they're not very good or, mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. or something. That makes and sense. they're really expensive. So we've always worked with organically grown grapes from Italy, even when we did our test batch and shipped them over to the U.S. But what we have also found is that the citrus that we're able to get in Italy is superior. It's organic. We're working with organic citrus from Sicily and it's great and it's not expensive because they've just always been doing it. Well, I feel like even beyond the business decisions too, Jen and I got to try some mm, yeah. and one of my like first comments was like this tastes real I feel like Yay! a lot of times canned beverages you're either like taste artificial or too yeah. sweet or it's just like mm-hmm. not it doesn't taste like wine or like no. the spritz and I was like wow this tastes like exactly if I had poured it out of a bottle right Yay! which you prefer for those casual moments like the thing is is like there's so many times where we're at home and we want to open a great bottle of wine which we just ordered a new case of by the way <laughs> but at the same time it's like I don't want to drink this entire bottle tonight how can I make this more accessible and still have something that tastes real and exactly. good and that's the exact perfect reason for why a good canned beverage like Ramona exists <laughs> Oh no! Thank you guys for getting it. That's amazing. Thank you. Like the thing that we are making and that we hope resonate is resonating. So that's an amazing, amazing compliment. And thank you so much. And then the other thing that is mostly specific to our newest release, which is a we just launched a couple of weeks ago, is the Amarino. So oh yes, I saw this. I will send you some. You will offline. <laughs> But basically, I, I love good spritz. And this notion of like the Aperol spritz was very much part of the inspiration. And then doing a deep dive into what's actually in Aperol. Mm. It's sugar. It's 279 grams per liter of cane sugar. But then it's colored. It's flavored with artificial flavorings. And then it's colored yeah. with coal tar-based dyes. And coal tar Oh, yeah. That bright color. Yes. <laughs> it's got to be something. <laughs> yes, exactly. So it's like, and it wasn't always that way. It used to be um, dyed with these little insects called coconils, which we thought about doing 
fighting for Amarino, but in the end, that would mean it's not vegan. And it's like, we're just, we want to sort of stick with plants here. And so, yeah, so Ramona's colored with, or the Amarino, we're using organic carrot and pumpkin. Mm. But just like doing this deep dye into cold tar-based dyes, it's like, yeah, this is like one of the most toxic things out there. And it is used in small quantities. So it's hard to build a case for right. how toxic it actually is. Sort of like, yeah, things with glyphosates, like when we're ingesting glyphosates. But it's, yes, as a person who gets to make decisions at our company, it's just really important to me that I can stand behind the decisions we make. Well, and I think that's like, you know, a broader trend in general too of consumers just caring more about they want to hear these who they're giving their money to, mm-hmm. what they're putting in their bodies, the types yes. of brands they're supporting. Like we've yes. seen that grow incredibly. So I feel like you're definitely doing the right thing at the right time. I mean, it's absolutely insane too, to think about how marketing strategies have to also differ, thinking about talking about all of these added benefits to cater to the consumer interest in these more socially responsible types of brands. And I mean, everything that I've ever seen on social from Ramona is great. Like, it's (laughs) it's like, I want to drink this even before I knew you were going to be on our show, you know? So it's just like, it's, I hope everyone here is going to give it a try after (laughs) listening to all the social ladies. Fingers (laughs) crossed for you. This is one of the reasons I love so much what you guys are doing and the stories you're telling. And I will take this as another opportunity to say thank you again. First of all, that was just so much fun because that's our world. We love food and wine <laughs> and hearing Jordan talk about all these restaurants she's worked in. And, and these chefs, chefs it's like, oh my with. gosh, I know. It's really cool. If, but I also love canned wine because like you said, you don't have to drink the whole bottle mm-hmm. in one sitting. But you can also try different things to get to know what you like. Right. I once went to a wine store and I bought, I think, the equivalent of a bottle of wine. But I just wanted to not commit and try the different. I I wanted a glass of white and a glass of red, you know? And then I didn't have to open a bottle. It's so fun. Yeah. No, Ramona makes it definitely, like, very accessible to kind of learn what you like exactly like you just said. But it's also just chic. So chic. Yeah, we didn't really get into the branding and anything like that, but it's just, like, so fun, so strong. Yeah, it reminds me, gives me, like, Amsam vibes. Ooh, yes. So really strong packaging, makes you, catches your eye, makes you want to drink it. And then hearing about, you know, all the thought that's gone into producing it just makes you want to drink it even more. Even more. more. (laughs) Well, tis the season for giving. And for the account I want you all to follow this week, I actually want to talk about something that Snapchat is doing across the app. Okay. So the Kindness Challenge, sponsored by the Kardashians, is a spotlight challenge where they're asking Snapchatters to surprise a loved one with kindness, compliments, love, compassion, and share their videos. That's cute. It's actually really nice. I see the top snap will receive Mm $50,000. Second snap will earn $30,000. That's a lot. And interesting because I saw that in 2021, Snapchat paid out more than $250 million to Spotlight creators. Wow. I feel like I should be making Spotlight videos instead of TikTok videos. I mean... I think there's a whole audience on Snapchat that we're kind of neglecting. I actually saw a TikTok video the other day of someone being like, everyone, just post content, post whatever. Like, you never know what might blow up. Mm -hmm. You could be making money from these funds. It's true. Just post, 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 post and see what happens. It's true. So I'm excited to see how the kindness challenge unfolds. Are you going to make a video for me? That's what I was just about to say. I mean, what better way to end this episode with some kindness to my fellow co-host? Okay, tell me something nice. Thanks for putting up with my bullshit.
<laughs> Thanks for always setting up the podcast equipment. Oh, love that. All right, everyone. Have a happy holidays. And happy, happy new, new year. year. And All we will ladies, see you in 2022. All the social ladies. 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 Now put your phones up.